This is Leader ReadyCast, a monthly podcast featuring real-world lessons, best practices, and action-oriented insights for the urate moments when you're called upon to lead. Leader ReadyCast is the official podcast of the National Preparedness Leadership Initiative, a joint program of the Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health and the Center for Public Leadership at the Harvard John F. Kennedy School of Government. Subscribe to Leader ReadyCast wherever you get your favorite podcasts. It's hard to think of a more stressful time in recent years than we've all been through during the pandemic. The physical and mental stress has taken its toll. Now, everyone who's come through an MPLI program knows about going to the basement or the amygdala hijack and the importance of counteracting it. Well, one upside to that adversity has been a new and robust conversation around mindfulness and other wellness practices for preparedness and response professionals, public safety officers, healthcare workers, and others at the front lines of the battle to contain COVID-19 and other incidents. My guest today, Karina de Alicon, has the unusual background of deep expertise in emergency management, business continuity, and enterprise risk, as well as mindfulness. She's a Fulbright scholar, a certified FEMA HSEP exercise designer, and a UCLA certified mindfulness instructor. She's also an alumna of the NPLI Executive Mental Leadership Program. Karina has worked on business continuity in the entertainment, financial services, and life science sectors, as well as with DRI, the Disaster Recovery Institute International. We're recording this episode in Las Vegas, where we are both attending the DRI annual conference. And I can think of no more interesting place, shall we say, to talk about mindfulness than Las Vegas. So uh, we're really going to enjoy this conversation. Karina, welcome to Leader ReadyCast. Thank you, Eric. Very happy to be here. It's so good to have you with us. And I'm really appreciative that you're going to share your insights with us. Now, when getting ready for this, I realized I know a lot of people in business continuity and related fields. I know a few mindfulness instructors, but you're the first person I've met who has brought those two pursuits together. Please share with us how you combine those two seemingly disconnected interests. Sure, I'd be happy to. So I'm born and raised in Montevideo, Uruguay. English is my second language. So let me know along the way if I say anything that is not clear and I'll try to rephrase it. I was awarded with a Fulbright scholarship to come to the US and pursue a master's degree in screenwriting at Chapman University, Southern California. And I was working at 20th Century Fox upon graduation. And I was living very close to UCLA, the University of California in Los Angeles. And just for my own stress management, my husband told me, you know, they have mindfulness sessions every week. You can go, you can just sit down for a half hour, meditate with the instructor. And I thought, I'll give it a shot, but I really don't think much of it. I went and every day for a couple of weeks, I practiced during lunchtime at Fox just for two to three minutes. What the heck, I'll give it a shot. Well, I did notice some changes within me after practicing for just two weeks. So. You see, where I'm from in Uruguay, this is a country made out of mainly Italian and Spanish immigrants from Europe. So I was conditioned in a highly emotional, reactive way. If you like someone or someone likes you, you like them more. If somebody hates you, you hate them more. Emotions are always right. So what I realized was I was getting an email, a pretty angry email at work at Fox. And because of my conditioning, I was getting ready to reply right away. And I paused for a minute and I said to myself, okay, forget it. They're just having a bad day, let it go. That pause, that space was not there two weeks before I had started practicing mindfulness. And that's when I realized, okay, there's something to this practice, to this discipline. 
And so I took it seriously to become a certified UCLA mindfulness instructor. I started working with the community. I taught mindfulness at a counseling center for children with neurological challenges such as OCD, autism, ADHD. And then very quickly, I realized a lot of the tools that I'm teaching, I could easily leverage and adapt for emergency management, management for business continuity. And that the icing on the cake, I guess, was the opportunity to partner with DRI in developing the day-long course, Mindfulness Practices to Improve Incident Management, which is the first course of its kind in the space. And I just want to take a moment to really thank Al, Chloe, pretty much the entire DRI team for nurturing a growth mindset and being open to, yes, this is a value add discipline. Let's go for it. Let's develop content. So in short, my mindfulness journey started on a personal level and then reaching out to the community and eventually incorporating it into emergency management and business continuity. Well, that's great. How fortunate we are that you were able to bring those things together because I think you're right. When you work in emergency management, business continuity, you get subject to a fair number of, of high stress events. And it's great to be able to have a way to, to regulate those emotions and, and to, to bring some calm to a situation that really calls for it. Yeah, absolutely. Now, I know one, one of the benefits of mindfulness is increased focus. And we talk, you know, everyone says they want to be able to focus better. So could you take us through a quick mindfulness exercise right here on the program to get us and the audience focused for the conversation ahead? Yes, of course. So before we jump into the exercise, I do want to make a couple of clarifications in case there are any preconceived notions around mindfulness. Sure. It is a um, secular practice. So we don't need to be wearing any particular attire. We don't need to be sitting in any particular posture. When we were practicing mindfulness in corporate America in person before COVID became an active event, we were wearing business clothes, sitting around a conference room table. That was it. So just clarifying the secular aspect of mindfulness. And also everything that I've learned with UCLA, everything that I teach is based on highly credible scientific research. I'm talking about systematic reviews. I'm talking about randomized longitudinal experiments. So just after, after having made those clarifications, I'll share a very quick definition of mindfulness and we'll jump into the exercise. Great. We can, we can define mindfulness pretty much as showing up for our lives, being present in the here and now instead of lost in the past, lost in the future. So mindfulness is the daily practice of noticing present moment experiences, noticing sounds, noticing sensations in your body, thoughts, emotions. And we pay attention to the present moment, to these sensations with equanimity and with kindness. And when I say equanimity, it means accepting the way things are, especially circumstances that are out of our hands, out of our control, such as COVID. And from a place of inner stillness, taking mindful action to change any variables that we can. So accepting the way things are with equanimity and kindness because we can definitely recondition the brain. Neuroplasticity is a fact, but it's not gonna happen overnight, especially after decades of conditioning in a, in a different, having been conditioned with a different behavior. So just being kind to ourselves along the way. And you know, paying attention to the here and now sounds great, sounds easy to do, but many times, professionals in emergency management, business continuity, tell me, look, Karina, 
that's great, but I'm not gonna, in the middle of civil unrest, I'm not gonna tell the crowd, hold that thought, I'm gonna go meditate for 10, 15 minutes, I'll get back to you. It's just not feasible, right? So really wanting to emphasize that there's a formal aspect of mindfulness and an informal aspect. Now the formal aspect is like we're gonna do in just a few minutes, we sit, we typically close our eyes or we leave them open, but looking down and we focus on the breath or we focus on sounds, keeping us focused on the here and now. Kind of like hitting the gym, if you will. You go to the gym, you work out your biceps. So then you can go to the grocery store and pick up, flex those muscles and pick up heavy bags. That's the informal aspect of mindfulness, summoning mindfulness on the spot in the midst of a power outage, of civil unrest, whatever the disruptive event is. And we're able to do that to increase cognitive functioning, situational awareness, and lower stress on the spot if we practice ahead of time through formal practice. So just wanted to clarify that it is possible to summon it on the spot, but you need to practice in advance. And having said that, let's Let's give it a shot. Are you ready, Eric? I'm, I'm ready to go. Let's do it. Okay. So it's going to be a short, brief exercise. If you want to close your eyes or keep, an op keep them open but looking down, we want to work through an acronym called STOP, which is the same as the stop signs we see on the road. The S stands for stop what you're doing. The T stands for take a breath. The O stands for observe sounds, thoughts, the breath. And the P stands for proceed. So I'm gonna guide us along the way. Again, closing the eyes if you're comfortable or leaving them open, but looking down. And we're gonna stop taking notes, checking the phone, whatever we were doing. And we're gonna take a deep and slow inhale and exhale. A few times, really taking our time, no rush, nothing else to do, just breathing in. And breathing out, and try to breathe in through the nose, breathe out through the mouth. It's okay if the mind gets distracted, just notice thinking, come back to the breath, not a problem. Allowing your breath to be natural and just notice if it's short or long, shallow or deep. And very gently shifting the awareness from the breath to observing sounds around us. Sounds are not a problem. They can be incorporated into the practice. So taking a moment to observe any sounds inside the room you're in. Maybe a clock ticking. AC running. And you can incorporate any sounds outside the room you're in. Somebody walking, the sound of distant traffic. What do you notice? What can you hear right now? Just for a few more moments. The mind gets distracted, just come back to the next sound you can pay attention to.
very gently shifting the awareness from the sounds back to the breath. Breathing in and out at your own pace. And whenever you're ready, you can open your eyes and we can proceed with the rest of the podcast. That was stop. Perfect. Thank you so much, Karina. And I, I know I feel more relaxed now. And I hope that our listeners who are, who are going along here also, you feel more relaxed, more focused, more centered. And I think you know, the, the important, one of the important things here is that you mentioned this earlier, that mindfulness is about getting you to notice the present. And mm -hmm. so often, again, even in the midst of an incident or even our routine times, we rush from meeting to meeting. Mm -hmm. And when you get into the next meeting, you're still thinking about the meeting you had before this. You're thinking about the meeting that's coming this afternoon. So you're not really fully present mm -hmm. for what you're doing. Therefore, you're not giving your all to that uh, in, in the moment. And I think that, you know, think about bringing people together around the table in an EOC or in that corporate war room during an incident how important it could be to actually make sure everybody is there and focused on the job at hand because the stakes are, are important and you need people's attention. And I know yeah. that, that the companies, Google is one, there are others that actually make it a standard practice to start meetings with a breathing exercise like STOP to again, get people just to be there. So while you're, while you're meeting, you have the most of people. And I, I'm guessing it probably actually makes meetings more efficient. Let's them be a bit shorter because you don't spend that time with all the distractions. You say, okay, we're here. Let's focus, do what we need to do, and then off you go to the next thing and, and repeat that process. Has that been your experience? Yes, absolutely, absolutely. And this is just one of the many benefits of a regular mindfulness practice. It really helps us increase focus, pay better attention while lowering stress, while increasing situational awareness and making better decisions, making more skillful decisions. Will we continue to make mistakes even if we're mindful leaders? Absolutely. I wish I could tell you differently, but it would be a lie. Now, will we make less mistakes and will we learn from the mistakes quicker? Absolutely. And I can guarantee you this because I continue to make mistakes myself. I continue to be a human being, but I will not make the same mistake again. And that typically is inspiring to the entire recovery team. When you're going through recovery from a disruptive event, the lessons learned become just a part of how you function and an opportunity for growth without defensiveness or finger pointing. Great, and, and I'm really glad earlier you mentioned the research and I wanna go a little more deeply into that because you know, I think there is the impression among some anyway, that, um, that mindfulness and related practices are a bit squishy. As you mentioned, you should be wearing flowing robes and you know, <laughs> sipping herb scented water or something, um, but it really is based in research. And I know, and you'll talk more about the research behind the practice itself, but I know with the MPLI, our, our own research, we looked into um, whether were there leader behaviors that improved or degraded team performance in, a, in an uh, incident command system. Uh, mm -hmm. If you're in an incident, you're in that EOC where you're responding to something, were there things leaders did that either improved team performance or degraded it? And right up there, I think it was number three, in the leader behaviors that improve team performance was where the ability to remain calm and moderate stress. And of course, that's what, what mindfulness is. One of the key benefits is being able to remain calm. As you say, insert that, that pause between uh, input and, 
and response to it, that the stimulus and response, to put that space in there so you are responding, not reacting. And, uh, and so there are, I know, tangible benefits. And please give us a bit more about what, what you've seen in terms of how we now understand scientifically this is actually a sound practice. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So mindfulness works, the benefits we just mentioned are tangible, mainly because of how our brains work. So let's talk about the research. We have the most primitive part of our brain, the brain stem. And this is, if you will, the reptilian brain. This is where we have basic functions such as breathing, digesting food, sleeping. They reside here, as well as the fight, flight, freeze response, all in the brainstem, most primitive part of the brain, reptilian brain. As mammals, when we evolved, we developed the limbic system where you'll find the hippocampus, the hypothalamus, and the amygdala, which you mentioned at the beginning of the podcast. Let's focus in on the amygdala. The amygdala is kind of like an alarm button that is activated when we are in the face of a life and death situation. Amygdala hits that alarm telling the brainstem, activate, fight, flight, freeze response. For example, I'm in the jungle, there's a lion, it's gonna eat me. Amygdala, very quick, very reactive, fight, flight, freeze. I either flee, if the lion pounces, I'll fight, although I don't think I have a lot of chances of winning, or I might just freeze. Very reactive, very quick. The problem is the amygdala doesn't know the difference between a lion and a tough conversation with a colleague or with the incident commander or with whoever it might be. Because it hasn't evolved much to the amygdala, stress is stress. So what we can do with mindfulness is we can, in, we can leverage the prefrontal cortex, the part of the brain that has evolved the most, as far as we know, only in humans, to lower stress and increase cognitive functioning and situational awareness. Now the prefrontal cortex, we can, we can think of it such as the CEO of the brain, if you will. And this is where we can access creativity, task management, delay gratification, decision-making. Now the study that I wanna share with you today and the audience, it was done in the 2000s. Participants from the study were connected to MRI machines and they were asked, they were shown images of human faces with expressions, and they were asked to label in silence to themselves to label the expression they were seeing. Happy face, sad face, angry. Now, what the research shows that was that when the participants were labeling the emotions, the prefrontal cortex was activated and the amygdala was deactivated. So in the midst of incident management as leaders, by simply labeling what we're going through emotionally. For example, you say something to me, Eric, you make me feel anger. If I simply in silence label that, wow, I'm feeling a lot of anger right now, a lot of anxiety, fear, whatever that might be, prefrontal cortex is activated, amygdala deactivated, increase in situational awareness, cognitive functioning, emotional regulation, helping us think straight. That's great. And I think that, again, that's so important because you're, you, as you describe it, what you're doing in that prefrontal cortex is you are elevating it to a higher level of thinking. You, by, but just by having to describe it, it goes from that reaction to the response because now I'm thinking about, okay, what is this I'm feeling? Therefore, what do I do about it? And that gets you out of that basement, out of, deactivates the amygdala hijack uh, and brings you out of that freeze flight fight response. 
And so it's so important, as you say, and if you just do that simple daily practice of two or three minutes, you build that muscle memory, that mental muscle memory, so that you know how to you learn these practices and can, can draw upon them without having to open the manual and turn to page 84 to remember what you're supposed to do. Exactly. <laughs> One of your other areas of expertise is risk. And do you see mindfulness practice as a way to mitigate personal and organizational risk? And so is there a bigger picture reason to, to pursue this beyond wanting people just to take care of themselves? Yes, let's talk about benefits to the organization as a whole with mindfulness practices. So research shows us that a mindful organization has higher levels of productivity, organizational citizenship behavior, lower turnover rates, lower absenteeism. So in short, a mindful workforce is a happy workforce that wants to show up to work, that wants to do good work, works more efficiently and goes above and beyond what is expected of them in their job description. This is a key benefit to the organization if we're focusing on the workforce. At the same time, mindfulness can really help strengthen leadership skills. A mindful leader is going to be able to increase self-awareness, emotional intelligence, higher levels of empathy. At the same time, a mindful leader is able to really identify and minimize cognitive distortions, cognitive biases, these blind spots that we have, and in that way, truly and authentically inspire and empower the workforce, the followership, to thrive in the midst of even the most challenging situation. And I really want to highlight the relevance of self-care for leaders, because many times as leaders, when we're leading an incident, we take our mental health for granted, and we need to take care of it. I'd like to share um, an analogy that I think will help make the, the strong business case for this. So when we're boarding a plane, we get on the plane and the flight attendant gives us safety instructions. And one of them is around oxygen masks. If there's a change in cabin pressure, oxygen masks will deploy. Please adjust the mask on yourself first before helping others. When we hear this statement, Nobody thinks, oh, what a selfish thing to do. I have to adjust the mask on myself before others. Yes, of course, if I can't breathe, I can't help you breathe. And this is key for leaders. We need to take care of ourselves first. This is not a selfish act, this is self-care so that we can lead by example, so that we can be the role model that the workforce that a recovery team can look at and truly feel that they are empowered to self-regulate and recover in the most effective way possible. That's great. That, you know, I, again, I think that people in this business take physical uh, safety really seriously. Mm -hmm. And what you're describing is taking that mental safety just as seriously. And, and these practices uh, can buy benefits then, benefits that way. And also I know that you know, we do this exercise in our various programs about the the great leader and the not so great leader, we ask people to describe each of them from their own experience. And one of the most consistent things that comes up uh, around the great leader is someone who demonstrates care for their people and investment in their people. And people mm -hmm. you know, think oh, that, that boss cares about me and wants me to do well. And so I think what, what I thought about as you were, just, you were talking because it sounds like bringing these kind of practices into the workplace shows the people you care about them and, sh and shows a tangible way you're investing in their well-being. And so and then, then the benefits you described of 
people who are more engaged, who make fewer mistakes, who want to show up and, and go above and beyond. All of those things are the benefits that every, every leader wants to get. And here you've given us a very tangible path to get there. So again, this is not soft, squishy stuff. This is not nice to have <laughs> stuff. It's actually a, it actually really is one of those, it should be a core part of, of the workplace culture and workplace practices as if you're trying to, if you're trying to, to build and maintain a high performance team. Yeah. We take our mental health for granted. And the moment it goes out the window, like we've seen with COVID, it is extremely challenging to get it back. That's right. That's right. And just working harder, faster, longer does not get you there. You've got to right. find a way to recharge and this is it. Yeah. You know, again, another facet of your, you're such a fascinating person. I have to say another facet of what you do is designing exercises uh, for, for, for you know, your FEMA certified exercise designer. How are you working mindfulness and related practices into exercise scenarios, are you? And, and what are you and the participants learning as you do it? Happy to share learnings from, from this standpoint. So just a quick overview of Homeland Security's Exercise and Evaluation Program, HCEP, the acronym, in case any of the listeners are not familiar with the framework. Pretty much we divide up exercises, whether they're discussion-based or operation-based, operations-based exercises, and typically they grow in complexity and scope as we go from a workshop or tabletop to a functional exercise where we're actually simulating the entire event. So what we've noticed with COVID is we have a lot of restrictions around operations-based exercises, something as simple as travel restrictions. But that does not mean that we have to settle for a basic discussion-based uh, tabletop exercise, for example. We can definitely continue to innovate and push the needle further. And I'm gonna give a few examples of how we're doing this. So one example is breakout sessions. Platforms like Zoom, like Teams, they enable us to do this. Bring the entire team, recovery team together remotely, and then have the opportunity for breakout sessions, functional breakout sessions, EHS, facilities, human resources, whatever the functions are, then get them back together for an overall debrief. Another way we can innovate and keep the exercises dynamic, even if they're just discussion-based, is team building activities. Today, we need team building more than ever before. We have global teams around all different time zones with many different cultural backgrounds, and there's always an opportunity to strengthen a sense of a shared mindset and team cohesion. So you can definitely include team building activities as part of a BCM exercise. Work into that exercise, a mindfulness tool like STOP, like the one we did earlier. It only takes a few minutes. It will help lower stress and increase situational awareness and cognitive functioning while we're exercising. And then when you go into simulation of your EOC, of your emergency operations center, you can more easily access tools such as NPLI's driving to the knowns because you've already done the work with the team to lower their stress and encourage them to leverage other cognitive tools as part of the exercise and as part of strengthening resiliency. So definitely an opportunity here with the examples I shared to make the most and get the most value out of discussion-based exercises with team building activities, breakout sessions, mindfulness tools, and EOC simulation with tools that the team has already practiced with, such as MPLIs driving to the knowns. That's great. And what a perfect way to, to bring it into, make it a cultural norm within the organization is if you, if you build it into the exercises and drills that you're, that you're doing. Now, 
part of what I want to, want to close our conversation with is, is helping people get started with this. Because I know a, a number of organizations, Harvard included, has sort of rolled out an app you can get. Uh, but that to me seems like a, a, uh, it's, a it's nice to have done, but it doesn't really help you adopt the practice and, and build, build the habit. Now, I always think back when I was much younger, my grandmother, when I would, she would see me getting agitated or angry, she would always say, stop, take a deep <laughs> breath before you go do anything, right? I, I didn't right. realize she's a mindfulness instructor, but maybe she snuck that in somewhere. I didn't realize that. It's, a, it's an age old wisdom of like, stop, take a deep breath right. and then go forward. So how, how do you recommend that people begin to adopt mindfulness as, as, a, as a regular practice? What are, the, what are the practical next steps people can take? Of course, let's echo your grandmother's advice and let's leverage stop. That's if, if what you heard earlier today during the podcast resonated, practice stop for just a few minutes every day for a couple of weeks, see if you notice any shifts within you, any lower reactivity. And then if you, if it is resonating and you wanna maximize your time and you wanna to cut to the chase, I would encourage you to participate in DRI's mindfulness practices to improve incident management. This is a day long class, the first of its kind in the space to combine mindfulness tools for improving incident management. And we give you an overall understanding of, we, we start off with the definition of mindfulness. We really break it down. We give a lot of examples of the scientific research behind it. We also dive into what are the most common cognitive distortions, decision-making traps we fall into as human beings with a nervous system when we're managing a crisis situation. And then we give you a mindfulness toolkit to mitigate those cognitive distortions. And the mindfulness toolkit includes pre-recorded digital meditations. It includes a lot of different tools, resources that you can easily integrate into an existing training and exercise program that fits your organization's culture. And if you want to do it in person, September 12th, we have the remote session coming up. And if you just go to the DRI website, you'll find the information. I would encourage you, again, baby steps, crawl, walk, run, practice with stop. And just remember that incidents are gonna keep happening. The world is a challenging place. They're not going away anytime soon, but we don't need to keep managing them in a way that takes a toll on our mental health. We can choose to do it more efficiently and it can start with something as simple as taking a breath. Thank you so much. And, and based on what you've just said, I'm gonna make a commitment here. We have a, one of our uh, crisis leadership core principles and practices online courses coming up and I'm going to commit to starting each one of those sessions with a, with a breathe stop exercise to make sure everybody gets centered and introduced this practice into our into our own teaching in a more formal way so that'll be coming up and we're both here at DRI Disaster Recovery Institute International their conference and they've got ongoing programs so we are uh, good to see that's being introduced here as well. Karina Delicon, thank you so much for sharing your expertise with us. I've really enjoyed this conversation. I'm sure our listeners will as well. And until next time, always be ready to lead. This has been another episode of Leader ReadyCast from the National Preparedness Leadership Initiative. Subscribe to Leader ReadyCast wherever you get your favorite podcasts and find out more about us at npli.sph.harvard.edu. Follow us on Twitter at Harvard NPLI. Thanks for listening and be ready to lead.